All right, so we're, uh, we're in Matthew for until t- the end of the year. I'm not sure how many weeks that is. Is that five weeks, six weeks? Um, maybe six, including tonight? I never know this time of year. I always get mixed up with the weekends and the, where, where New Year's actually is. Uh, luckily, there's, I think, some open time in New Year's if we need to continue studying Matthew or wrapping up Matthew uh, for the first few weeks of the New Year. We can do that if we need to. Uh, from there, we're going to go into Joshua. And so overall, what I want to say is this. This is a great place to do the book of Matthew because uh, for reasons that I'll spell out tonight, uh, the book of Matthew really is a book about what the book of Deuteronomy was pointing toward, going into the promised land, possessing the land, um, being the people that God has uh, always desired in the earth uh, the book of Joshua is also a great book to read coming out of Matthew because you can read it through the lens of uh, Joshua as a, a type of the one who was to come, the, the heavenly Joshua, Jesus. I mean, it's really the same name in Greek, Joshua and Jesus. Um, so I'm just really excited that we are studying this now. And I think that there, as I've been hearing things from the fast uh, that people have been sharing, um, I really do believe that the Lord has us, has us here for a reason. You know, we planned this a while ago, and you never know, you never know how God's going to use stuff. But this, I really believe, is, is divinely arranged, uh, us going through, through Matthew at this point. Um, so I want to encourage you to open your heart and, and really hunker down and devote time to meditate on the Word, to read, um, to, to ponder the things that we talk about on Saturday nights in this, in this season. The other thing I'll say about speaking of this season is this. Um, there, was, there was some debate as to where we, when we were thinking about the, the fast, it, it had kind of floated around date-wise for a while, and we were saying, you know, if we're going to all do this, there's a large community, we need to sort of plan it out and just set a, a time in the year, this is our fast time. So when should it be? Should it be the weekend after Thanksgiving, weekend before Thanksgiving? What are we going to do? And there was some debate, and one of the considerations was, one of the suggestions was, we should do it after Thanksgiving because that sort of breaks up the month-long kind of over, overload of, uh, of holiday parties and food and overstimulation and all this kind of stuff. Um, which I thought was a really good point. We ended up doing it the weekend before, which that's when it's going to be every year. But I really do want us to consider Advent typically is a season of fasting in the church. Right? The whole idea of Advent is anticipating Jesus, longing for Jesus. The song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, really expresses the heart of Advent. We need you to come. We are desperate for you to come. We are hungry. And so Advent... Traditionally in the church is a season of fasting. And I really think what our culture has done to the time leading up to Christmas hijacks what, high, what Advent is all about. In a, in a season of what should be quiet and waiting and anticipation and seeking God, it's, it's the most distracted time of year. And so just, just on a kind of from pastoral concern, let's maintain a spirit of Advent, of, of true Advent. Of, of fasting and of anticipation. Um, you may want to, if you don't already, 
observe that Wednesday, the weekly Wednesday fast, which is just a 24-hour fast, um, it, it's a great antidote to the pressures and the busyness and the overload of the season. Um, so I'm going to encourage you, if you've found clarity during our three-day fast, incorporate that into your life. One of the things that I'm hearing is that <laughs> from the fast is that people were like, hey, this is something that's always available. The face of God is always there for us. The presence of God is always there for us. And so I want to encourage us to take advantage of that in this season um, and to use fasting and to use um, disciplines to, to shield ourselves from that. I don't know. It's just the, it's kind of the, the, the holiday warm fuzz that, that comes over you during this time of year. And it just it can, it can really jar us out of a passionate, radical uh, pursuit of Jesus. Amen? So that's just one thing that was on my heart uh, tonight. Um, so when I was, let's see, I don't know when this was. I, I must have been late high school or early college. Um, if you know my dad, you know that he likes to um, drive as cheap a car as possible. They have a nice van right now. And really, I think he does that for my mom uh, more than anything. But my dad, I mean, he bought a car once for $50 and drove it for several years. And every time I would, yeah, I mean, every time I would, <laughs> it was worth $50. Um, every time I'd ride in it, he would, he would just be so proud of, of riding in this cheap car. I feel like I'm just making money every time I drive around in this thing. Just making money. Anyway, we had this, uh, we had this burnt orange 1986 and this was well after the 80s had passed, well after the 90s had passed, uh, Toyota Tercel with like, do you know, this, it was close to 300,000 miles. Do you know what a Toyota Tercel wagon looks like? Burnt orange. Can you get an image? All right. We had this car. This is one of the cars I learned to drive on. I think it had like three gears. And you would get on the highway, and it would just sound like, and I just thought it was going to explode. Anyway, it, it broke down, and this is how old it was. The problem was the carburetor. We don't really use carburetors anymore. We use fuel injectors. And I'm acting like a car person. I'm really not. But I know this part of it because of what the story is about. Uh, we got, <laughs> we got a new car. My dad found a new or a, a repaired carburetor, rebuilt. I don't know what you do to a carburetor uh, to make it usable again. But it was just sitting there. And do you know, if you've ever seen a carburetor, it looks like the most intimidating piece of machinery you've ever seen. There's like valves going this way and that way. And there's, a, there's like, I don't know, seven, eight, nine hose connections that all go into this carburetor, right? And it's a, it's a crucial part of the, the internal combustion. Um, it is where air and fuel come and mix in, in the right ratio to where the spark plug can ignite it and, and the engine fires, all right? So the car had broken down and the carburetor needed to be replaced. My dad found this carburetor and, and I was like, you know what? I'm not a car person, but how hard can this be? There's the old one. Here's the new one. I just got to replace it, right? So, so I set about replacing the carburetor and I did successfully, by the way. That's not the point of the story. Um, but the hardest part was getting all of the connections right. Remembering which hose went where, because there was like three little hoses 
down at the bottom. So I ended up like just labeling everything because there's an intricate puzzle piece to try and, and fit all the hoses together. And it was really cool. It was a very fulfilling uh, project. Um, the whole point of that is I, I think that the Gospel of Matthew is like a carburetor. And all of the connections, we, we've got to get all the connections there. And when we do, the engine will fire. All right? All, there's, there's this Old Testament theme. There's this Old Testament story. There's this Old Testament type and character and figure. And the book of Matthew is just like this carburetor. You look at it and there's all these different things where things can go. And what I want to do tonight, and maybe for the next couple weeks, is try and put all the hoses on in the right place. Does that make sense? Uh, to where it's connected to the larger system of the vehicle, and, and it can actually make something go. This metaphor came to me as I was preparing today. Is it a helpful metaphor for you? Do you understand the point of the metaphor? Okay. All right. Sometimes I'm scared of anecdotes, because I don't know if they'll really translate. But... Um, I want to trace as many of these connections as we can and try and plug them in so that we can see what it is. Because, yes, it's a very intricate piece of machinery, but it's not really worth anything unless it's situated right in the car and plugged in correctly. And then it can really do what it's supposed to do. So the book of Matthew is awesome. I'm sure if you've been reading it, you're seeing, oh, this Old Testament scripture, this Old Testament theme. But I want to connect it to the larger story um, so that it can be for us what it needs to be. And uh, so many of these primary connections, luckily, happen in the first four chapters. Like any good storyteller, he kind of packs, packs his primary themes into the intro and then spends the rest of the book fleshing those out. Um, Matthew is, is masterfully crafted, I would, I would argue. All right. Does that make sense? This is what we're going to try and do. Kind of get, get big picture situated with the book of Matthew. Because Matthew, more than any other gospel, is intentionally written to be a part of the story of Israel. And if, if you've read any sort of commentary about Matthew, you know it's the gospel to the Jewish world. It's uh, the gospel to convince Jewish believers that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the one that scripture points to. He is the fulfillment of the prophets, right? Matthew is consciously, and even on the surface level, how many times in the first four chapters, as I mentioned in the email, how many times in the first four chapters does he say, so that this Old Testament scripture would be fulfilled? So that this Old Testament scripture would be fulfilled, okay? So Matthew is very intentionally beginning his story, presupposing that the readers or hearers of the book understand what story he is continuing, okay? He's writing the climactic chapter to a long story that's already been written, okay? Now, it's the best chapter. It's the climactic chapter, but it's really only a climax if you understand how we got here, all right? So that's, that's what I want to do. Um, so this genealogy is incredible, there's so much here packed into the genealogy. There's four uh, or five points about the big story that are packed into just the genealogy. All right? um, two small points first. Um, number one, the fact that Matthew begins his story with a genealogy. 
should be familiar to anyone who has read the Pentateuch, especially the book of Genesis. These are the generations of Noah. These are the generations of Shem. These are the generations, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He's continuing the Old Testament narrative. How many genealogies have we read just in the first five books of Moses? It's showing the line of Christ. Um, So that's the first point. Starting a story with a genealogy is an Old Testament move, okay? Particularly a book of Genesis move. Uh, Number two, and these are the first kind of two small points. um, The women in the story, this could be a whole sermon. The women that he, he chooses to mention in the genealogy. Who are they? Tamar. Well, we read that story not too long ago. That's a dicey story. It's, it's morally complex. We're not sure how we feel about Tamar. Okay? Um, Rahab. What's her deal? Well, she's a prostitute. Now, she helped out the spies. She was a prostitute in Jericho. She helped out the spies when they came in and acknowledged Yahweh as Lord. And so they brought her into the family once they came through. Um, Ruth is not a, not a Jew. Doesn't have the, um, doesn't have the moral uh, compromise that some of the others might. But she's not originally a Jew, kind of married in. Um, married Rahab's son, by the way. A prostitute son. Um, the wife of Uriah. Who's that? Bathsheba. Dicey story. Uh, and then all the way to Mary, who um, it's also a unique story, right? A virgin conceived is a bit scandalous to Joseph, as this gospel tells us. He was going to, he thought she had been unfaithful, right? Something happened here. So the women, uh, several of these are not ethnic Jews, um, but they have been, to use Paul's terms in the book, book of Romans, grafted in to the family of God. Um, They also represent, many of them, sexual brokenness in many ways that God has redeemed, right, to to perpetuate the lineage of Jesus, which is an amazing thing. Um, So, those are two small points. Now, three big points about the genealogy. It's broken down into three sections. Matthew's very intentional here. He starts it out, Jesus, back to David, son of Abraham. Okay, and then he, he, he rewinds back to Abraham, and then he begins to move forward um, in, those, in those three sections. Abraham, the father of Isaac, and Jacob. Then he goes all the way to David. Then he goes from David, and then the third marker, the third big chapter, is the deportation to Babylon. That happened... Um, or you could, you could also just call that the exile. The exile. Um, so I want to talk about those three things. Abraham, David, and the deportation to Babylon. Okay, these are three hoses that we need to connect to the carburetor so that the fuel and the air can mix and that the engine can combust. Okay? Abraham, 
God called Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldees to give him a land, to give him a place, to bless him so that all the nations of the earth could be blessed in him through his offspring. The bulk of the Old Testament is the story of God's faithfulness to his promise to Abraham. You go to Exodus, God moves and he hears his people, he has pity on them. He goes down to deliver them. Why? Because he remembered his covenant to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all through the Old Testament, whenever you see God deciding, you know, I will go and rescue my people, it's in remembrance of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembered his covenant, and so he acted on behalf of his people. The bulk... uh, so it's, the bulk of the Old Testament is the story of God's faithfulness to that promise in the face of generation after generation of unfaithfulness on his people's part. Okay? So that connects to the story that Matthew's about to tell because this guy, Jesus, comes from the lineage. He is an offspring of Abraham. And that ties it directly into the primary story of the Jewish people. The Israelites. David, uh, David represents the royal kingly era of Israel. Uh, the monarchy, they, they weren't always led by a king. Um, but coming out of the, the period of the judges, the people cry out. For a king, God raises up Saul. Saul does not um, remain faithful and obedient to God in the way that he needs to. So... God removes the kingdom from Saul and transfers it to someone uh, who's after his own heart, namely David. God then promises that David's offspring will always be the royal line. Okay, and actually the whole term, the whole idea of Messiah or Christ literally refers to the anointed king of Israel. Okay, it means the anointed king. All right. And so David represents Messiah. David is the, is the messianic figure. And I just want to read God's promise to, uh, to David, because when Matthew says David, someone steeped in the story of Israel, hears this. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 7. And this is Nathan speaking to David. God speaking to David through the prophet Nathan. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, Why have you not built for me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly from the time when I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. This sounds an awful lot like the promises that God affirms to his people, even in in the Pentateuch long before David was on the scene. Moreover, the Lord declares that to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. 
He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline with him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. You and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. He tells David this. And this is as sure as he says, Abraham, in you, from your lineage, all the earth will be blessed. He says, David, from your line, I will raise up a king. And his kingdom will will reign forever. Okay? So Abraham, David. And then the third big chapter is the deportation to Babylon. Um, Exile is a constant theme in the Old Testament. Uh, Really, the first time we encounter exile is when Adam and Eve are exiled from the Garden of Eden. Uh, Because of their sins, they are no longer allowed to be in the the place that God had prepared for them to be. And that's, that's exile in a nutshell. God has a place where he wants to dwell with his people, but because of the sins of his people, because they won't, for whatever reason, usually idolatry and the sins that follow idolatry, they cannot be in that place anymore. God has to remove them from that place until their sins are dealt with, and then he can bring them back. Okay? This is a constant theme. Um, they found themselves in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh. It wasn't so much an exile as it was uh, in, a, in oppression. Okay, but Egypt then became sort of the type of all exile, that the people of God in bondage under a foreign ruler in need of a deliverer to come and bring them out. And so exile is always um, that longing for God to move on behalf of his people. Um, specifically, it mentions the deportation to Babylon, the Babylonian exile. I don't know if you remember this, but um, after... Solomon's sons split the kingdom, Rehoboam and Jeroboam, into northern Israel and southern Israel. Northern Israel does not last very long, the ten tribes of the north. They get taken away by Assyria into exile. Babylon comes and and, uh, conquers Assyria. And it takes a lot longer for the southern tribe, which which then just becomes referred to as, as Judah, the southern tribe of Israel. They are the ones that get taken away to Babylon. And that's what a large part of the prophets, the major prophets in the Old Testament, are prophecies to Judah that the Babylonian exile is coming. For example, in Jeremiah, when uh, there's that great, the verse in Jeremiah that everybody knows, for I know the plans I have for you, plans to to prosper you. um, That's in the middle of Jeremiah saying to them, you're going to go into exile. Don't listen to the people that say you're not. You are going to go into exile, and it's going to be 70 years. It's not going to be short. It's going to be 70 years. You've got to go. You're going to get comfortable, build cities, have babies, and bless the nation that you're in. But after 70 years, I'm going to come back. I'm going to bring you back. Daniel is the one who was reading Jeremiah, and he says, hey, 70 years are up, and they come back. Um, But the deportation to Babylon was the last exile of the Old Testament. And if you read the, the, the story of them coming back from those 70 years in Babylon, 
it's not really the party that you would think it is. You're left at the end of the Old Testament, Ezra, Nehemiah, with the sense that this isn't it. That all of those things that God was promising in the Old Testament, it's not, it's not done yet. And actually, when they rebuild the temple, there's, a sound, there's sounds of weeping. I think it's, in, it's either in Ezra or Nehemiah. There's sounds of weeping. It's a, it's a really interesting verse. The young men weep for joy. Yes, we now have, we finally have a, a place. The old men weep because it's nothing like it used to be. And they know the former glory. And then there's, there's some great, wonderful passages in the prophets where it says, the latter house will be greater than the former house. And so you get to the end of that story, and the latter house is not greater than the former house. It's a shadow, a ghost of what it used to be. And then there's 400 years of silence. And then Matthew says, here we are. Okay? Um, just a, a small note, 400 years of silence. When else does that happen? Where's that? Egypt. In Egypt. Before, as they multiply and grow and wonder, what's going on? We came down here, we were 70 people, and time's sort of gotten away from us. Nobody knows Joseph anymore, who's the reason that we're down here. And now we're building pyramids for Pharaoh. (laughs) What's going on? We're oppressed. This is not right. Okay, so Abraham. Major chapter, major connection, major flow of air (laughs) into the carburetor of the book of, of Matthew. When he says Abraham, think of all of the stuff that has to do with Abraham that we've been walking through. When he says David, and we haven't been in the, we haven't been in the, in the Samuel and Kings yet. But just think of, I mean, that's a major chapter in Israel's history. They are waiting for someone like David to come and reestablish the kingdom of God. Right? If, if there's one thing that you know about Matthew, it's that he loves talking about the kingdom of God. Okay? That should all be working together in your head. And then the deportation to Babylon. God's people are in exile. And there was, a, there was a sense in which, for first century AD Jewish people, that they were still in exile. That they were in their land, but they were in exile. Right, The Roman people or whatever ruler was over them. And there's, in the, during those 400 years, there's revolts against, you know, that's what the Maccabees books are about. These Jewish revolts. And some people think, hey, this is Messiah. He's coming and to establish the kingdom. And, but no, it's not. It's not him. And even through the Gospels, in the book of Acts, it says, um, when Jesus is raised from the dead, his disciples ask, well, at this time, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? So there's this anticipation of and waiting for and crying out for a deliverer. When is he going to come? It's going to be our deliverer. It's going to be our David. It's going to be our king, our Messiah, and our Moses. And he's going, to, he's going to be a prophet, and he's going to be a priest, and he's going to be a king. And that's all just in Matthew's genealogy, the way that he catches us up to where we are. 
Abraham, David, exile. And he has this really interesting verse. Chapter 17, the way that he organizes it. It's not an exhaustive genealogy, by the way. Luke has more people in it. In Luke 3, Luke the thorough physician wanted to, to cover more bases. Matthew is structuring this in a very unique way. So all the generations from Abraham to David, 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now, I very rarely get into like the Bible numbers calculation game. Okay, for obvious reasons, much, much harm, maybe not harm, but much idiocy has been displayed uh, through this, right? 88 reasons why the rapture will happen in 1988, and we're still waiting here in 2019. Um, There's lots of Bible number crunchers out there on YouTube. You can go and and watch them to your heart's content. I'm not one of those. Um, What I am is a careful reader of the text. And I, I noticed that Matthew points this out. Hey, it's 14, 14, and 14. So we've got to pay attention. And someone like me, who's a little allergic to the number crunching, if I'm reading this honestly, I have to pay attention. And what do I notice? Um, and lots of commentators have pointed this out, that it's, it's six sets of seven generations. And what does that mean? That the generation starting with Christ is the seventh seven. It's perfection. It's completion. It's fulfillment. Six is the number of man. It's the number of incompletion. It's the number of toil and labor. And the seventh is the number of God. It's it's the number of rest and fulfillment and completion. So I don't think we have to go out on a limb too far. To say that what he's saying here is that the story that follows is a fulfillment and a completion and a climax of everything this lineage represents. Everything this genealogy represents for us. All of those major chapters, those major themes in scripture. Okay? So Abraham, David, and exile. Big Old Testament stories that should be stirring in us as we read. And we need to have those lenses on. Okay? You need to have Abraham goggles on when you read Matthew. You need to have David goggles and everything that goes with that. And exile. Okay? Now, there's another figure that we have to be looking for. He doesn't explicitly mention him in, um, in the genealogy. But he's a major, major type that we have to reckon with if we're going to read Matthew, and that's Moses. Okay? And I really believe that the birth, the way that Matthew tells his birth story is meant to clearly establish, maybe among other things, but one of the primary points is meant to clearly establish Jesus as a new Moses. Okay? He's the one who has Herod killing the children. Sounds familiar. It's exactly what Pharaoh did when Moses was born. He's the one who has um, the flight to Egypt, right? They go down to Egypt and then come back out of Egypt after those who sought your life were dead, which is a direct quote from when Moses is in Midian. Hey, those who sought your life are dead. You can go back now. 
and, and deliver your people. So it's clearly, clearly a recapitulation of the Moses story and a fulfillment of it. Okay? There's obvious echoes here. And, he, and Moses is the great deliverer of the Old Testament. He is the great prophet of the Old Testament. Um, the birth with the hiding in Egypt, even just hiding at birth, the need for secrecy, right? That is, that is very mosaic. Herod as, as a type of pharaoh. Um, baptism is the Red Sea. Right after the Red Sea, what happens? Right after the baptism, what happens? He's driven out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit, where he experiences hunger, right? So he is reliving the whole story of the Exodus. Not just deliverance from Egypt, but everything after that. 40 days, he undoes, he undoes the disobedience in the wilderness. So Jesus is, is very clearly re-walking the footsteps of Moses in a greater and more perfect way. Um, along with that, and where we left the story off in Deuteronomy, is Moses can't go into the promised land. Moses is a six guy, right? He never made it to seven. <laughs> he worked hard. He did a lot of great stuff. But he did not go into the promised land. Okay? Who did? It was Joshua. Joshua was to lead the people into the promised land. Joshua's name is Jesus. It, that's, that's, the, that's what Jesus' name is. It's the same. Right? Uh, we just say Jesus for some reason from the Greek transliteration, but the Hebrew is, is Joshua. They're both Yeshua. Right? Um, that's what Joshua's name is, and that's what Jesus' name is. And it means, Matthew 1, verse 21. She will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. And that's Matthew's. That's Matthew's summary of the story that he's about to tell. This is the story of Jesus saving his people from their sins. What does that mean? It means delivering them from exile. It doesn't just mean Jesus came to save individuals for the things that tripped them up. No, God has a people who is in bondage because of their inability to follow the law that he has set down. So he himself now has come to deliver them from the bondage that they've made for themselves. That's why his name is Jesus, because he has delivered his people from exile. He is saving his people from their sins. But it also means that he is Joshua and he is bringing the people into the promised land. All right, so he is Moses and Joshua in one person. Um, so let's go to Deuteronomy. And this is great. I could, I could just as well call this sermon a conclusion to our study of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy 30, or 31. Um. Just start on verse 1. So Moses continued to speak all these words to Israel, and he said to them, I am 120 years old today. I am no longer able to go out and come in. The Lord has said to me, you shall not go over this Jordan. The Lord your God himself 
will go over before you. He will destroy these nations before you so that you shall dispossess them and Joshua will go over at your head. Verse 6, be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them for it is the Lord who, your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. God himself is going to go with you. And Joshua is going to lead you. The mystery that's revealed in the book of Matthew is that Joshua is the Lord himself. Jesus saves his people from their sins. What's the other name that we have in Matthew for Jesus? Right after that, he shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. He is Joshua, and he is God with you. He is the fulfillment of both of those things that Moses said in Deuteronomy 31. The Lord himself will go over with you, and Joshua will go at your head. Isn't that awesome? And this is where Matthew starts his story. Listen to, listen to who this guy is. He's the offspring of Abraham. He's in the royal line of David. He is, he is the deliverer. He is Moses coming down to deliver his people from bondage. And he is Joshua going into the promised land at their head. And so Matthew ends his story. We can do the spoiler alert. In Matthew 28, you probably don't even have to go there. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw that they worshipped him, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I've been commissioned. Right? God himself has given me power and authority, just like Moses had commissioned Joshua. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is this story that Matthew's telling us? The book... I would say this, the book is not, even though it, it, it is, but it's not just a story about how Jesus is the fulfillment of all this stuff in the Old Testament. Okay, great. That's nice. Wow, we see it. Ooh, look at all the, the hoses that connect and boom, the engine is running. That's great. But it's also a story of how the life of Jesus is now being fulfilled in his people. It's a forward-looking book. This is a book about who you and I are. It's a book about who Jesus is, but it's a book about what he calls us to do now as his people. And so we need to connect all the hoses of the Old Testament to this book. But we also need to let this book connect all the hoses to our lives so that we can continue the life 
that Jesus lived in the flesh. And so that we can live at that life so that the right amount of his life and, and, and the Holy Spirit are in us so that we can be on fire for him. So that we can go into the land. So that we can obey this command to go and make disciples of all nations. This is a book for the followers of Jesus. And it's a, it's a the, the book ends on the border of the promised land. And the, and, the, and the charge is given. And the commission is given. And Joshua goes before us. And, he, and, he, and God himself goes with us at the end of this book. Isn't that awesome? I think that's amazing. So this is a book for would-be disciples. Okay? This is not a book for curious Old Testament antiquarians. Right? This is a book for would-be disciples who want to learn from Jesus the way to live life. And who make themselves totally available to be sent out by Jesus into the world to help others do the same thing. Okay, so as we approach this book, yes, we want to see how all the threads connect. But we need to see how we connect to all those threads too. Does that make sense? We can't just leave it at, oh wow, I see the connection. You need to be the connection. Does that make sense? So this is what's on my heart as we approach Matthew. We need to see ourselves as part of God's fulfillment to the promise to Abraham. We need to see ourselves as part of God's fulfillment to the promise to David that his kingdom would never end. And that the king from David's lineage would always be on the throne. And we need to see ourselves as part of the story of God's people in exile because of sin awaiting a deliverer. And recognizing when that deliverer is on the scene. So there is a land to possess. There is a calling to fulfill. There is a charge to keep as the people of God. And it's very clearly spelled out at the end of the book. And the contents of the book are going to tell us exactly how we go about fulfilling that call. Amen? All right. Um, so I, I've encouraged everyone to, to aim at reading the whole thing through or listening or whatever you do um, to the whole gospel through. Aim at once a week. I think it's doable. It's like, what do we say, about a couple hours, a little less than two hours, or a little more than two hours. Um, you know, 15, 20, 30 minutes a day uh, should get you there. Um, but more than that, uh, I, I hope that as we begin to go through that as we get into these stories where Jesus is confronting the Pharisees or he's ministering or casting out a demon in a certain way, that part of, those, part of that exile or the, or the David story or the, or the Abraham story or Moses' story, part of it comes to life in you and you see, oh, that's what he's doing. Right? When he touches that leper, wow, he's really, uh, he's really reversing the curse. Because right? what did it say at the end of Deuteronomy? Hey, if you obey me, you'll be blessed. If you don't obey me, you're going to be cursed. You're going to end up in exile. You're going to have disease and all this stuff. So when you see disease in Scripture, you should see people's sins. Jesus came to people to deliver them from their sins. Part of the effects of sin is disease. Part of the effects of sin is exile. Part of the effect of sin is uh, um, 
oppression from rulers and everything. And Jesus is going to address all that. All the facets of the curse, he's going to come and confront and minister to those. And all those curses are nothing new. They're spelled out in the book of Deuteronomy and even before then. Um, so hopefully we can have those, those goggles on as we go through. Um, any questions or thing, anything to add or under, underscore? Everybody ready? Amen. All right, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, thank you for this book. Thank you for not just the book, Lord, the, the, uh, the main character in the book. Uh, Lord, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the life that he lived. And Lord, I pray that you would give us um, wisdom as we go through this book, that you give us insight. Uh, Lord, we don't just want to be... Um, Lord, we do want to be faithful faithful students of your word, but we don't want to be mere head knowledge students. We want to be true disciples as we approach this book. And so, Lord, give us that posture. Uh, Give us an open heart. Give us open eyes uh, to see things. Lord, again, I pray for insight, that the the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened and that Christ would be real to us in the pages of this this wonderful gospel. Lord, go with us this week. I pray that you would abide with us in this season of Advent, that we would um, be able to often quiet ourselves and quiet our hearts, even in the midst of noise and, and activity, that we would, we would live in a place of stillness before you uh, in our hearts, God, and that we would live from that place of abiding, uh, in, continually in your presence. Help us, Lord. We need help navigating uh, this life. Uh, each of us has a different, have different challenges, God, and so we, we need your help. We need Jesus to be real to us, to show us how to live our lives as true disciples. Um, speak to us, Lord. Convict us. Give us grace, Lord, and, and ultimately lead us into the land that you have called us to possess. And thank you, thank you, thank you for never leaving us or forsaking us, Lord, for being with us always to the end of the age. We love you for that, and we say that there is no God like you because of that. Um, Hallelujah. We give you honor and glory. Uh, Lord, may our lives reflect your glory, and may others see you in the way that we live uh, for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.